and open to Matthew chapter 7. And next Sunday night, which is what? 15th, Ethel's going to be baptized. Okay, now, she was supposed to be baptized the night I preached, but it didn't really allow me time to get changed and get back on the pulpit and preach. So she's going to be baptized this coming, that's next Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. Is that right, Ethel? So, come out and uh, support Ethel and her baptism. Okay. We are in Matthew chapter 7, and today we're going to finish the chapter. We're going to go from verses 13 through 28. And this concludes the Sermon on the Mount. And in this conclusion, Jesus calls his hearers, who gathered around a, sort of a, on the edge of a mountain, and Jesus is sitting on the hillside, and they are below him. He is calling upon his hearers to heed his lessons that he preaches in this cha- in the chapters 5, 6, and 7, uh, lest they miss out on the kingdom. Now, this is a kingdom-oriented sermon. He's telling us what it takes to be recognized as a member of God's kingdom. And he said, here are the characteristics of a person who's a kingdom citizen. If you don't bear these characteristics, you're not in the kingdom. So uh, to drive his point home, he uses three metaphors or similes, which are graphic figures of speech, uh, that are to grab people's attention and drive the point home. And he speaks of, in this section here, he speaks of two doors, he speaks of two trees, and then he speaks of two houses. The two doors have different openings. The two trees produce different fruit. And the two houses have different foundations. And these doors, trees, and houses represent two ways of living. And they end up with two results. One ends up with life, the other ends up in death. The one ends up in the kingdom, the other ends up outside the kingdom. So there's a blessing and there's a cursing, depending on uh, which way you live. So let's go to the doors first, also called gates, and you'll see that in verse 13. He says, enter in by the narrow gate. Well, cities had gates. And uh, he's this is a command, if you'll notice that. Enter by the narrow gate. Enter into what? Well, we think he's talking about the kingdom of God. In order to enter into the kingdom of God, in order to have what he would call eternal life, you have to go through what is known as a narrow gate. Now notice it's a command. It means you enter by the narrow gate. That means the responsibility is on us. There's a lot of teaching going around that emphasizes the sovereignty of God, that salvation is of the Lord. And that's true. But there's another side of the coin. And there's a human responsibility. And here we are called upon to enter by the narrow gate. Now by describing the gate as narrow, Jesus is, is just think of something narrow that you have to get into. A narrow door or a narrow gate. He's describing something that's not easy. He's describing something that's difficult. To get into the kingdom is difficult. 
How difficult is it? Well, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult would it be for a camel to get through an eye of a needle? That'd be impossible. And here he's saying it's very difficult to enter the kingdom of God. And he uses this narrow door concept. That means you've got a lot of baggage with you. Could you squeeze through that gate? Through that door? Probably not. So, he's talking about the difficulty. And then look what he says in verse 13. Here's why you have to go through the narrow gate. Because, or for, here's the reason for the command. For, wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. So you see, there's a second door. And it's easy to get through. It's wide. The road leading up to it is very wide. Uh, if you had a highway that was this wide, as wide as the room, and you had to walk this highway, you wouldn't have any problem. We could walk pretty much down the center of the highway. And we could reach the door. So we do have a wide room. And there's a door to the exit. It's not hard for me to go through those double doors. It's not hard for me to get to those double doors because, look, the pathway is very wide. But it's a way that leads to what? Destruction. How many people are going through it? Many. Now listen, what he's saying is, don't follow the crowd. That's what he's saying. If you want to get it down to the, the simplest thing, don't follow the crowd. They're leading you to destruction. So, there's somebody's phone. I don't know if they can hear it or not. Even with my bad hearing, I can hear it at this point. Okay. So, there are two ways. Narrow gate, and then wide is the gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are going by. It sounds a lot like Psalm uh, 1 in many, in many ways. Uh, yep, don't follow the crowd. Remember what he said about that? He said, uh, don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly nor stand in the way or the path of the sinners. Don't go by the pathway of the sinners, which is the wide way. It tells us to stay away from that. And look at verse 14. Because narrow is the gate. Narrow is the gate. And difficult is the way. You see that? Which leads to life. And there are few that find it. Few that find it. Jesus' concept of eternal life, entering the kingdom of God, salvation says, is available. It's available to all, but how many actually get it? Few get it. How many go to the way of destruction? Many go by the way of destruction. And uh, he's probably talking about the end time judgment. In the end time judgment, there's going to be a few that enter in the kingdom of God, and there'll be many who don't. Notice it's difficult. It's the way of self-sacrifice. Now, you say, well, what does it involve? Everything that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Self-sacrifice, putting others first. The broad way is the easy way. It's the way of self-gratification, looking out for number one, not being concerned with other people. So, uh, we need to realize that this is a command, and since it's a command, you know what else it is? It's a warning. 
when Jesus gives commands, they usually have a flip side and it's a warning. He says, hey, enter by the narrow gate. That's the command. The warning is, hey, don't go the other way. and find yourself in trouble. So there are two gates. Now, look at the two trees. Look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets. There is a second command. What was the first command? Enter by the narrow gate. What's the second command? Beware of false prophets. A false prophet is a pseudo-prophet. Somebody who's passing himself off as a spokesman of God. Now look at this next phrase. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Who come to you in sheep's clothing. Notice the phrase, come to you. Most likely means they're traveling preachers. Traveling prophets. In the early church, prophets were a traveling ministry. Had a traveling ministry. And here were people who were coming. And that's the same as evangelists. There were evangelists who traveled. There were prophets who traveled. Pastors stayed in the church. Teachers stayed in the church. Apostles traveled. Three traveling ministries. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers stayed in churches. So here are a group of people that are coming in. They're claiming to speak for God. Uh, they look like genuine believers. It says they're in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So they are not what they appear to be. It's important that you get that. Uh, they look like they're part of God's flock. God calls his people a flock like sheep, another metaphor. But And they look like sheep. They're in sheep's clothing. Outwardly, they look like genuine believers, but inwardly, what are they? They're not part of the flock. They're what? Yeah, they're out to destroy the flock. Just the opposite of a sheep. A wolf wants to devour the flock. So these are people who are deceiving you, and really they want to hurt you. They want to destroy you. They are the ones probably saying, go the Broadway, everything's okay. Now, Ezekiel, very interesting, both Ezekiel and Zephaniah in the Old Testament describe Jewish leaders as wolves in sheep's clothing. In the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, is called his flock, but Ezekiel and Zephaniah are looking at a group of leaders who are bad leaders, and they're leading the people astray, and they call them wolves. Jewish leaders were the wolves, the bad Jewish leaders. The Apostle Paul warns the church at Ephesus. He says, when I leave, watch out, because the first thing that's going to happen is that there are going to be wolves coming in, dressed in sheep's clothing. He uses the exact same language. So notice the command is beware. Be on guard. Be on the lookout for this. Be vigilant. Don't be gullible. Don't be caught off guard. Uh, why? Because these people are deceptive. They look like they're God's men and women, but they're not. Now, let me ask you, why do you suppose Jesus said that to the crowd? Beware of false prophets. Why do you think he said that? I guess because they were false prophets. <coughs> 
Why do you think Matthew included this story in his gospel when some of the other writers didn't include this story in his gospel? Because his audience, reading it years later, have the same problem. And why do you think we hold it in our hand and it applies to us? you have any reason why you think it would apply to us? I guess because there's some false prophets out there now. So we have to beware. We have to be on guard. We need this warning as well. And if we do not heed it, we will be destroyed by these people. Now, how do you recognize these people? Well, it says you'll know them, verse 16, by what? Their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits. Fruits point to roots. Very important that you get that. What they produce indicates what they are. What they produce indicates what they are. Did you hear that? What they produce indicates what they are. And then he asked this question in verse 16. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes? And the answer is no. Or figs from thistles? No. Even so... Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Look at that. A good tree, it doesn't say does not, it says what? Cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree bear good fruit. So I've got a peach tree in my backyard, and it does not produce apples and oranges. How do I know that? How do I know that it's a peach tree, not an apple tree? By its fruit. The fruit tells me what kind of tree it is. Now, Jesus is not talking about apples and oranges. He's talking about men. So he's just using these figures of speech to drive home his point. He's talking about men. Good men and bad men. Real prophets and false prophets. How can you tell a real prophet from a false prophet? How can you spot a false prophet from a real prophet? By the results. By their fruit. By what they do. Uh, in this case, do they produce the fruit of righteousness? Which is very important. <clears throat> do they produce good fruit, the fruit of righteousness? Or do they pr produce bad fruit, the fruit of unrighteousness? Do they live godly lives? Does their life, is it characterized by righteousness? Or is their life characterized by unrighteousness? Do they live immoral lives? He's talking about human character. See, that's the important thing. You judge a tree by the character of its fruit. If I look at the fruit, I know the character of the tree. I know what it is. If I look at these people's lives, I can tell what I can tell what they are. What is their character? Are they real prophets or are they false prophets? Notice we don't judge them by what they say. These people can each actually say Jesus is Lord and be false prophets. These people can sign every doctrinal statement that was ever set before them and be false prophets. These people can repeat the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, 
and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, third day rose. They can repeat that and may even believe it. They can say those things and be false prophets. So, well, how can you believe it and be a false prophet? Because they're self-deceived. It's not what you say. It's not the doctrine that you affirm, although doctrine's important. That's not how you judge a false prophet. You judge them by their conduct. Their conduct points to their character. It reveals who they are. Look at verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cast down and thrown into the fire. Notice, how many are cast down and thrown into the fire? Some. Every one of them. He's not talking about trees again. He's just using the trees as an analogy. He's saying that every false prophet will be judged. And they will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, does that sound familiar to you at all? It should, because back in chapter 3, we see that same wording. Go back there for a second. I want to show this to you. This is when John the Baptist came preaching the kingdom of God. And you see it in verse 2. He said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he called people to repent, be baptized, confess their sins in verse 6. Matthew 3, 6. And then look what you see in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, by the way, Jewish leaders, who were leading the people astray, coming to be baptized, he said, you brood of vipers, he could have said, you bad trees, if he wanted to. <laughs> One thing, they're not good vipers, <laughs> bad, vipers, bad vipers. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore, look at this, bring fruits worthy of repentance. Notice the fruits there. Do not say to yourself, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Notice he calls, tells them to bring forth the fruits of repentance. And in another gospel, Luke's gospel, they say, what does that look like? And he said, well, if you have two coats, somebody asks you for one, give it. You're familiar with all that. That's what it looks like. It's how you live, not what you say. These Pharisees said, we believe, we believe. We have Abraham as our father. Many Jewish people in Jesus' day thought that they would enter the kingdom of God by the fact that they were related to Abraham. Just on that fact alone. Jesus says, no, that's not good enough. You need to have fruit. You need to show fruit that you are a child of God. And they, that's why he says right in, in, in verse 20, he says there back in uh, Matthew 7, look what he said. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. By their few fruits, you will know them. And then he says this, Not everyone who says to me, in verse 21, says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, look, not what you say, see that? Not what you say. What do they say? Lord, Lord. When do they say, Lord, Lord? I think they say it throughout their ministries. They say it at the judgment seat too, but they say it throughout their ministries. Their prayers. 
They say, Lord, Lord. I have to say it twice in case he doesn't hear. They're talking to the Lord. They pray. Maybe vain repetition. Lord, Lord. But they're praying and they're confessing Christ. They're confessing him as Lord in verse 21. Not everyone who says Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of God. Well, how do you enter the kingdom of God? You have to go in by what kind of gate? The narrow gate. I guess they're not going in by the narrow gate. Not everyone who says Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of God. Now look at the end of 21. But he who does the what? Will of my Father in heaven. Notice the difference between says and does. Says and does. A lot of people say Lord, Lord, but they're not going to enter. Who enters? He that does what? The will. Oh, what is the will? It is found in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is talking about, as we'll see. This is the will of God. This is what it means to produce good fruit. You produce good fruit by doing the will of God. You're living a moral life. You're living a life that's kingdom-centered. That's the good fruit. You live a life that's self-centered. That's the bad fruit. You do not enter the kingdom of God. So, if I ask you, well, how do you spot a false prophet? How do you spot a true prophet? I'd say, well, they walked an aisle. Does that make them a true prophet? No, it doesn't make them a true prophet. They sign a doctrinal statement. Does that make them a true prophet? They love their enemies. They look out for other people. They pay their bills on time. They pay off their debts. They don't try to cheat people. They forgive others that have off against them. They're honest people. They're upright people. Their word is their bond. All these things that we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. That's how you determine whether a person is a true prophet or a false prophet. They perform miracles. That make them a true prophet? Has absolutely nothing to do with whether they're a true prophet or not. Look at verse 22. Many will say in that day, which is probably judgment day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And the answer is, yes, you did. You said, thus says the Lord, and you gave a prophecy in His name. Look at this. Middle verse 22. Have we not cast out demons in your name? Yes, they did. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And the demons left. And have done many wonders in your name. And the answer is, yes. Yes. They've done all of these things. And look at verse 23. And then I will declare to them. That's what they declared to me. Here's what I'm going to declare to them. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, you who practice lawlessness. Now wait a second. In verse 22, they are workers of miracles. But in verse 23, Jesus calls them workers of iniquity. Which is it? both. Yes, they performed miracles. Yes, they did cast out demons. But guess what? They're not going to enter the kingdom of God. They are workers of iniquity. Really, the fruit that they produce is not fruit that identifies them as believers. Just think about this. If I said Judas Iscariot, 
I want you to know that Judas Iscariot went out with the twelve because Jesus sent them out according to Matthew 10 and also Luke. Two by two. And they came back and said, even the demons are subject to us. He sent them out and healed. Judas Iscariot cast out demons and Judas Iscariot healed people. But he's a worker of iniquity and he did not enter the kingdom of God. See, and this is where the majority of people really get confused because they see people doing tremendous things with great oratorical skills and miracles and all these kinds of things. And they just assume that these people must be godly people. Must be God's word. Oh, yeah, I know they do a little things, little shady things over here. But look, God's using them. Hey, God used Balaam's ass. He can use anything or anything. He's, look, Matthew said he could raise up stones to praise him. If he can use a stone, he can use a false prophet. If he can use a mule, he can use these people. So uh, don't ever judge them based on their works. Based, judge them based on their character. And uh, does their character, the fruit, what they're doing, does it reveal their character? If it doesn't reveal their character, you don't judge them on those things. And look what he says. He said, I never knew you in verse 23. You see that? I never knew you. Now, the amazing thing is, twice, in verse 21 and 22, they acknowledge Jesus. They say, Lord, Lord. Both times. They acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but guess what? He does not acknowledge them. He said, I never knew you. You're going around ministering in my name, but you're not one of mine. You're not a sheep. What are you? A wolf in sheep's clothing. This is how Jesus is concluding the Sermon on the Mount with these warnings. This is serious business. He says, this is where we're, this is what you need to understand. So you have these two gates, two doors, you have these two trees, and now you have these two houses. And again, he's not talk, really talking about houses. He's talking about people, but he's using these metaphors to drive his point home. So look at verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine, what words? The Sermon on the Mount. The things that I am teaching. The law that Jesus has reinterpreted in its fullness. Therefore, whoever, whoever, that includes us all, hears these sayings of mine, and what? Does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now notice, again, Jesus says, these sayings of mine, that's going to be the basis. Do we hear the sayings? Notice it says, hear the sayings and does them. Do you see that? Here's the sayings in verse 24, and does them. Look up at verse 21. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who what? Does the will of my Father. Does the will of my Father. Look at verse 24. Here's these sayings of mine and does them. Jesus speaks on behalf of the Father. Jesus reveals the will of the Father in the Sermon on the Mount. And so what he says is we need to put these teachings into practice. Put them into practice. That person will stand, and he's like a house built on a rock, and the winds come. But everyone, verse 26, who hears these sayings of mine, and does not do them, 
will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the wind descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. No exceptions. Everyone who hears the words and doesn't do them will be like this house. No exceptions. It's not enough to hear the words. It's not enough to affirm the words. It's not enough to confess Jesus. You must do the will of the Father. So orthodoxy must become what theologians call orthopraxy. You need to put what you believe into practice. Hearing plus doing equals obedience. Hearing minus doing equals disobedience. Hearing plus doing equals obedience equals kingdom of God living. Hearing minus doing equals disobedience, and that only results in judgment. So what's Jesus doing? He's drawing a picture here of a valley in Palestine where sort of like, it's like the Trinity River Valley bed. And it's dry most of the time. And somebody comes and they build a house right on the river bed. And they say, oh, this seems like a nice place. They're not familiar with the area. And then come the rains. And then the river rises up and it floods that whole area over in South Dallas. And because the river overflows. And guess what? Anything built on that sandy bottom, that sandy loam, would just float right down the river. And Jesus is saying, it's the same way. In Palestine, people would come, they'd build their house in the valley, and then when the spring and autumn rains came, it would just destroy the house. He's saying that that's what people who confess Him and believe the Word but don't do it are like. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be judged. But the person who says, wait, I would love to live in this valley, but I don't want my house swept away. I don't want the sand underneath it just to go. So you build it on a rock. So the difference is what foundation you build your house on. The houses that are built on strong foundations stand. The houses that don't do not stand. So, when you look at this teaching, Jesus is saying, who's the person that enters the kingdom of God? Who's the person that has eternal life? It's the person who obeys. Now, it's not obedience that saves you. It's not obedience that makes you a child of God. That would be a work salvation. It's that the child of God is obedient. That's how you can tell he's a child of God. The one who says, I'm a child of God, but he doesn't. He's not obedient. He's not a child of God. He's deceiving himself and maybe deceiving you. You see, so the key is, we should. Why do you think he's saying that? Why well, he wants us to judge ourselves? Say, like, am I a child of God? Do I meet these qualifications? Do I hear the word and obey it, or do I not? Am I a real child of God, or am I self-deceived? Now, if we could just look at this and draw some lessons, we would say, not everybody enters the kingdom of God. <laughs> That's obvious. Jesus is not a universalist. He never talks about a second chance after death. Well, if you don't do it this time and after death we'll give you a second chance. No, it's, it's destruction. It's, you perish. You're judged. You're lost. And by the way, this is why I put very little confidence in uh, deathbed confessions. 
No way I can test it. Oh, yeah, but right before he died, we went to the hospital room and we told him about Jesus. He said, I accept him, I accept him. So he was a believer when he died. I don't know if he was a believer or not. May have been a believer? What? May not have been a believer? Can you tell? No. Can you hope? Yes. Because there was no time to be able to tell whether he was a real believer. So in the end, guess who's going to have to make that determination? God. <laughs> but boy, we hold on to every little string of hope that we have. So now look at this aftermath. Verse 28. And so it was. When Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. They were amazed. They had never heard anything like it before. Why? Because he taught them, verse 29, as one having authority, not as the scribes. The scribes were the official teachers and protectors of doctrine and scripture in the Jewish society. And they were amazed at Jesus because he spoke with authority, not as the scribes. Well, the scribes were pretty good teachers. But they based their authority on the teachings of the rabbis. They'd say, Rabbi so-and-so says. That's sort of nice second-hand teaching, isn't it? Jesus says, God says. And Jesus represents the Father, not the rabbis. Jesus represents the will of God in heaven. God chose Jesus to be his spokesman. But Rome, the government of Rome, chose the scribes. The scribes were always answering to Rome. And the temple priest, you think the temple, Jewish temple priests during Jesus' time were pretty good people? They were bums. When Herod was named king of the Jews by Augustus Caesar, he immediately appointed the temple priest. He was the appointer. And the scribes were their assistants. And then when Herod died, somewhere in 4 to 6 BC, uh, the Roman government just took over, determining who the priest would be. So the Jewish priest didn't represent God, he represented Rome. These people represent Rome. They want Rome's will to be done. Jesus only wants God's will to be done. So there's a ring of truth with what Jesus says, and they understand there's a ring of truth. There's an authority there. He speaks with great authority. And uh, it's why it's important that when we preach, we just teach, we just go down verse by verse and we let God do the teaching. We don't add too much to it. We might try to explain it a little bit. We just go down verse by verse. That's the only authority that I have. I have no other authority than that. Just think about, just think about those countries where the church and state are one. Like in England, the preachers of the Anglican church are paid by the government. Whose bidding do you think they're going to do? When push comes to shove, are they going to do God's bidding, or are they going to do the state's bidding? Watch out. And in America, well, we don't have a state that necessarily controls the churches, but guess what? We still have pastors that quote theologians, pastors that quote this person, pastors that quote that book. 
And really, I couldn't care what these other people say. And you shouldn't either. The only thing that's important is what God says. Unadulterated, pure word of God. Now, I could have sort of smoothed over a lot of these very hard teachings of Jesus, couldn't I? I could explain away some of Jesus' hard teachings by giving you some theological tripe. But then I wouldn't be teaching God's word. I'd be teaching theology. I don't want to teach theology. I want to teach the Bible. I want God's word to come forth. And when we do that, we speak with authority. Jesus spoke with authority because he gave us the pure, unadulterated word of God, unvarnished, plain God's will. And how do we know that his word indeed was authoritative? Because Rome tried to get rid of him, and they put him to the cross, and the Jewish leaders who worked for Rome put him to the cross, and they said, we got rid of that troublemaker. And God said, wait a second, his word is authoritative, and I'm going to prove it. And he raised him from the dead on Easter Sunday. Proving that Jesus indeed was who he said he was, and indeed taught for God. So, Jesus is one with authority. Now, in the next chapter, we're going to see Jesus begins a healing ministry. So healing is not not a bad thing. It's just that you can't judge a person by their healing abilities. And next time we're going to see that Jesus displays the power of God. And we'll pick up there next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a Sermon on the Mount. A passage that's so relevant for today, and yet we don't quite know what to do with it. It seems like it's impossible uh, to follow and to live, and yet it's not. We have been given warnings here. We have been warned to uh, not to follow the crowd, but enter by the narrow gate. We've been warned to uh, examine our character and our fruit and those around us to determine whether they're real believers and whether we should listen to them or, or not. You've warned us that we have to build our lives, not our houses, our lives, uh, on a strong foundation upon the rock. Oh Lord, may we take this message the heart. Help us not to be hearers of the word, but help us to be doers of your will as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.